0: Uh, we're of course continuing on with our series Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity and we are still reviewing what we did in the first two years. This is the third school year on this series and if I, I didn't expect the review to take this long but I'm looking for a handkerchief. So uh, you should have an outline that says, uh, uh-oh, do we have the right ones? Yes, we do. You should have one that's that uh, says, Rediscovering Restoring His Pattern, Emphasis 3, Titles and Brief Review, okay? So I hope to get through Emphasis 4 tonight, although you don't have an outline for Emphasis 4. If, if I get that far, I have, a, I have an outline for it. But you may have to, uh, uh-oh, for some reason I just have 4A. Um, so when Stephen gets back, I'll... Maybe he misunderstood that I wanted all the, emf- all the uh, ones from emphasis four. So we may have to uh, get that far. So uh, at, uh, at the beginning, one of our theme verses is Isaiah fifty eight twelve. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You'll raise up the age old foundations and you will be called repairs of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell and uh only a couple uh translations like the orthodox jewish bible and the complete jewish bible bring out uh, none of the english bibles bring out very well that the hebrew when it says those from among you it really means kind of those who emerge from among you and it's really talking about your spiritual children of course one of life's greatest joys is when your own natural children grow up to become your spiritual children and serve with you together i just uh just finished uh, reading uh, Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. A lot of you know my pastor, Ray Nethery, and he discipled Josh McDowell in the early 50s. And Josh McDowell is kind of a leading author. Uh, and, uh, his book, More Than a Carpenter, is an excellent book to use when uh, people are considering Christianity for the first time. And I had not read it for ten or twelve years, so I just reread it and realized in rereading it that the the version that we now have on the shelves at the church is actually a updated and revised version that was co-written with his son, who's become himself uh, quite a noted Christian author. So that's kind of cool. Um, you know, I I would encourage you guys. You're most of you are a little young for this, but uh, don't you really should start thinking now and praying now that your children will become your spiritual children, that they will be part of your apostolic team, your pastoral team. Uh, if you're called to the realm of business or whatever, that they'll be part of your uh, business or or whatever. It's uh, no greater joy in life than having your own uh, children, you know, ch- uh, choose when they grow up to uh, to be part of your vision and, and uh, serve with you in it it's a awesome thing um so last week we uh if you remember the 15 emphasis that we're looking at we dealt with for a few weeks the first emphasis was which what it means to love god we dealt with uh grace upon grace and for those of you who uh are involved with any of our other stuff we're actually doing our grace upon grace at the thursday bible study at cedarville this right now hey haley how are you hi Teresa. Hey. how was day two Whew. good yeah <laughs> i saw a facebook post about day one so i already knew that was good um so we you know that if you really put some content to what it means to love god biblically it's a very different thing than what most contemporary christians are living and experiencing uh you know we as our divorce rate uh lets us know we don't have a lot of uh, understanding about what love and covenant and commitment are all about in our culture right now and uh that has gone so far is that what it means to love god is really not very uh it's kind of a mushy nebulous uh, we think it means going to church a little bit, maybe reading a little bit of the Bible once in a while, or whatever. We we haven't really put much content in what it means to love God. So uh, those outlines are available. Uh, I don't know if uh, this if some of the recordings are going to become available or not, but if they do, we'll let you know. But um, we could always give them to anyone who wants some, even and, if they don't so um, loving god should lead you to to understand that what the bible means by loving god is not just difficult it would be it's utterly impossible and so that was a natural segue into studying the subject of grace because grace is god choosing us not us choosing him and grace is god choosing us despite the fact that if you really start to understand our our sin nature Most of us think of ourselves as, especially if you grew up Christian, you might think of yourself as having been mostly a good little girl or boy or something like this. But the truth of the matter is, you're not. (laughs) And uh, you're really going to start making some progress in Christ when you see the depth of our sin and our depravity. And mostly what our sin's about is that the Bible says, there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. Romans 3.10, quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and uh and in fact our hearts are kind of uh uh hoping this god thing is not as serious as it is uh we you know we want to walk with god we don't want to walk with god the way say our the bible says the spirit of god says our elders tell us we want to walk with god our way and we want to define our priorities and our relationships and and our values and our approach to vocation and finances and all kind of things we want to you know in the essence of becoming a christian is to is to take jesus yoke upon you and make him the lord of everything and he will have ways of testing your heart in that um, they come through the the delivery systems of grace the world the you know the word the spirit and the church um, so we started looking at, uh, what we covered on the church. And so we're going to get into that. You, you should have, again, if you have the outline, that's, that's, uh, actually four pages with a staple on emphasis three, um, we got, I think as far as we talked do you remember, we talked about the different kinds of literature in the Bible, right? So who can tell me what didactic literature is? Didactic literature is what most evangelicals have been taught to believe the whole Bible is and that that's the only parts you can actually trust or follow. <laughs> that's, but that's kind of an idea that's out there pretty strong in evangelical Christianity. What is, what is, it, what is a didactic literature? Plain language teaching. Plain language teaching. What else? Nobody. There was a definition right on the page last week. If <laughs> you keep your notes, <laughs> what? Who, who said that? Doctrines, doctrine, straightforward, directional, doctrinal statements, propositional truth. That that would be all ways of saying didactic. Okay, right. All right, so we talked about, oh, it's right on the page of uh, the notes you're looking at, actually. Uh, Straightforward or plain language teaching doctrines or statements that contain theological, moral, or exhortative instruction to which aesthetic and literary considerations are subordinated. Right? There are actually many fundamental Christians, many evangelical Christians, who say that's the only parts of the Bible you can really follow. In most teachings today that are in churches that are thematic versus churches that teach expositionally, uh, I I imagine at your church they teach in an expository way. So uh, tell us what's the difference between thematic teaching and expositional teaching. Yeah. an exegetical uh, would be to, to really uh, to exegete something is to is to take out of it, ex, take out of it what's in it, everything that you can. So exegetical teaching would be to kind of really thoroughly study a verse and get, you know, its context, what various Greek words in it mean, uh, compare it to other similar passages, all sorts of things. Uh, expository is actually the word I asked for. That's not quite the same as exegetical. What is the difference? What's expository teaching? It involves uh, a little bit of exegetical teaching usually, but expository teaching is when you go through whole books of the Bible and you're, uh, you may, for instance, just do a chapter a week or something like that. John has a tendency to do that a lot in, in our church. Uh, but you might do, divide it up a little bit more into like two Oh, two chapters a week, or something like that, or follow more natural breaks than where the chapter breaks are, because the chapter breaks, of course, were put in around the 8th century, and often they come right in the middle of ideas. That, you know, sometimes they did a really good job where they put the chapter breaks, sometimes they did not. It's always a good habit when you're reading the Bible to never end at the end of a chapter, always read a little bit into the next chapter, and when you're starting, always start about a little bit back now most Bibles actually have a bold print number for where the translators think the paragraph should be but the paragraphs weren't in the original either so in Greek there's not the uh, paper was a premium and uh, and there's no spaces between the words in the in the early manuscripts from the first several centuries and there's no punctuation you could tell what part of speech it is by the word endings uh, much like in Spanish, uh, verbs have conjugations and so forth. A Greek, like a Spanish verb has six main congi- conjugations, right? Uh, and then you use a prefix verb to make it uh, past, present, or future, is that correct in Spanish? Like in other words, you uh, most Spanish verbs, as you go through first person, second person, and third person, it's just in the present text. You have to add another verb to make it past or pre- future. what's that again Lena for the past tense, you just differently. oh it is there so there is a different so conjugation in Spanish do, for past ask, so. okay so that's true in Spanish I, I don't know Spanish I was just guessing from from having taken a little high school Spanish but in Greek you you can do all that with the conjugations of the word like every verb has around hundred and thirty conjugations to to know of one for ver- each verb <laughs> that's pretty intense Let's see who's texting me to say they're going to be late. I should, um, turn off my ringer, well, i get it. Okay, so, um, so anyway, uh, parts of speech are, are done by work, you know, by their conjugations and so forth, and feminine or masculine endings, past, present, future, all sorts of things. Uh, what do we mean by historical narrative and why do we use the word historical? We're looking at, does everyone have this? Emphasis 3, we're on uh, Emphasis 3a, the church and word pictures. What do we mean by historical narrative? God's ways according to his eternal degree. Okay, so tell me something that's not on the page. <laughs> what did we talk about? Well, I wasn't What's that? I was in your. You weren't here last week? Hmm. Oh, Well, we've, we've covered this on Sunday mornings a number of times. And you well, um, that it tells the story of history. Well, that God's Word tells a story, but what's uh, what kind of stories can be what? F- fictional or non fictional, right? So, why is it important to say it's an historical narrative? Because they're true, they actually. Right. So you know, biblical doctrine includes that the 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 scripture is inspired by God and therefore it's infallible and inerrant, right? Now we won't go into the difference between infallibility and inerrancy tonight. They're similar but not quite the same concept, but they're that means they're they're absolutely trustworthy and accurate in every jot and tittle. Somebody get this fly away from here. like spiritual warfare or something (laughs) it's a demonic fly (laughs) lord of the flies (laughs) so um, where were we i lost my train of thought here um so does anyone know what happened in in terms of the fundamentalist modernists with the idea of the bible telling a story we've talked a lot in this class last year we spent a lot of time on the Modernist versus the fundamentalist uh, ways of interpreting Scripture. The modernists say it's just a story, and then the fundamentalists go too far the other way as a countermeasure and say um, that it's not a story, it's just facts. Right. So modernist uh, that that embraced uh, Darwinism and an idea called higher criticism, which we've talked about, and that basically... Uh, starts undermining the accuracy or veracity or the truthfulness of the scripture, they uh, were very big on emphasizing that the Bible is telling a story and that the stories are what's important. Right? But they were saying the story is mythopoeical. It's, It's a myth. It's a fictional story. So in ancient literature, all ancient literature, all... Uh, has what's called cosmogonies and it's not as hard as you think everyone's like don't give us big words cosmos is the word for what the or- the order or the universe right and genos is beginning. beginning or birth genos birth right so every ancient culture egypt samaria the the you know the mayas the incas uh, the you know, the ancient cultures in China and so forth, they, uh, they had stories of the birth of the, of the world and of the universe, right? But all ancient cultures approached it as what? Mythopoeic cosmogonies. That is, it was just fictional stories. The, the idea that it needed to be true, his, scientific, or historically accurate did not occur to ancient men. That's a modern invention. They wouldn't have cared about that they would have cared about it explaining uh this is how we got here so if you read like the egyptian cosmogonies they start with almost all cosmogonies of ancient culture start within the beginning is water why chaos. because water is a universal symbol of chaos it's formless and void if you're ever out on a on a lake on a storm it can be a pretty scary experience you know if you're you get caught out on your boat in the ocean when a big storm hits, and you <laughs> somehow didn't, uh, weren't paying enough attention. It, you know the waves become formless and void, right? Even the disciples were pretty scared on the Sea of Galilee, and they were experienced fishermen who'd grown up on boats, right? So, um, and then out of that, out of that universal chaos of water. Came uh, land. So in the Egyptian one, uh, this silt starts to form and it forms an island. And then out of this island came a cow. So all evolutionary ideas always have the concept of what? Life out of non life, spontaneous generation. The number one problem for any kind of evolutionary scheme of thinking is that at some point, life had to start come from non-life without an intelligent person directing that. That's a pretty big leap. There's no evidence of that in the universe. And ever since Darwin, men have been trying to, uh, have spent millions of your tax dollars go towards scientists who are trying to do that in test tubes. And every, every advanced industrialized nation of the world taxes its people for scientists to do experiments to try to create life out of non-life, and no one's come close yet. And about every 10 or 15 years, you hear a news story that, you know, in France, they're about to have a breakthrough, and they're finally going to do it, and it always sizzles out. Right? So, uh in the ancient world they they have these stories uh but they didn't the idea that they needed to be historically or scientifically accurate that was a modern construct that wasn't uh that didn't occur to ancient man the bible comes along and says instead of in the beginning was water in the beginning god So it actually takes the form of the Egyptian cosmogonies and it turns it around and says something exactly opposite. In the beginning was not chaos. In the beginning was an intelligent designer, creator, being. And the spirit of God was hovering on the face of the chaos, the waters. And then God said and began to create order in an orderly, purposeful universe. So the bible is is 180 degrees the opposite of every other ancient literature story of the beginnings of mankind very important to understand that and so in the bible god is a god who lives outside and above time and he created time and space for his eternal decrees or purposes and therefore the bible being historically accurate is like the most important point of the bible no other major world religion gets that or tries to have its faith rooted in historical personages and events christianity is the only one that says hey you can check the facts you can study whether there's the why? Why? Uh, when the disciples began to say Jesus was resurrected, that the Pharisees couldn't find a body to produce. You can study the fact that the resurrection would actually the evidence for it would hold up in a court of law. It's one of the most verified events in the history of mankind. If you know how to study law or history, and look for evidence. There's actual ways you go about examining evidence. And if you get, if you get educated in examining evidence, you will see that, that the facts of Christianity bear up to a great deal of scrutiny. No other religion tries to do that. So historical narrative, very important. How many books of the Old Testament are considered historical books? Hopefully, you all know this off the top of your head. John Luke. No? Really? Like, you never learned this in your Sunday schools when you were a kid or nothing? Like, what did they cover in your church? from Judges until the one right before Job, right? Well, Judges and Esther are often called the historical books in modern uh, parlance or modern Bibles, but they're the other historical books because Genesis through Deuteronomy are historical books. So there's 17 historical books of the Old Testament followed by five poetry books followed by five major prophets and 12 minor prophets, which adds up to another 17. So the, the Old Testament is very symmetrical on purpose. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. And 17, 5, 17. It's all done quite intentionally by God. It's a, is, is a pointer to the, to the reality of it all. So the first, the first 17 books of the Old Testament are prior, primarily an historical narrative. So why is the word narrative important? So we discussed a little bit why historical is important, why is narrative important? right there's stories that the point to a point to point to various points within the the narrative one of which is that many of the figures are a foreshadowing or a type of christ that's part of the story so who knows uh like when i say i always say that the whole bible is contained in the in a historical narrative form in genesis 24. who, who knows what i mean by that I'm sure you probably know the answer to that right you know the answer to that? Uh, the whole Bible, the Bible is contained in in one historical narrative in the ch- in Genesis chapter twenty four. Yeah. What do I mean by that? Go ahead. Well, the Abraham is a typical figure for God the Father. Yeah, so Abraham is a type of God the Father in the, in that particular chapter. Yes, and Isaac um, um, is a typology of Jesus. Right. Right. And what does the father, what does Abraham do? Um, Abraham sending servant to search a bride for Isaac, father of God. So what is the Who does Rebecca symbolize? Church. The bride of Christ or the church? Right. What are some of the things Abraham tells the servant? Right, so he he says don't take a bride for my son from the daughters of Canaan and from the Canaanites who represent, in the Bible, there's two lineages that are always going on. There's the, uh, you know, Cain killed Abel. And so God, the Bible makes it very clear that God replaced, that God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth, right? And so the descendants of Seth in the Bible are Yahwehist. There are people who follow Yahweh, the God of the Bible, right? Who are some of the major descendants of Seth? You should know some of the names. Noah. Who's Go a little further back. Enoch. Enoch. Who said Enoch? Yeah. yeah, and what, you know, Enoch walked with God and he was not. Meth- someone said Methuselah. Who said Methuselah? That's correct. Right? Lamech so forth so there's there's so what you know remember when Moses kills the Egyptian mm-hmm. right and he uh, has to flee Egypt and he finds himself in the tents of who his wife. well he meets his wife there <laughs> who's the dad Jethro. Jethro and is Jethro a Hebrew Well, answer the first question. Is Jethro a Hebrew? No. But is he a Yahweh worshiper? Yes. Because God, you know, you'll often hear misinformed Sunday school people today will say still uninformed things like, uh, Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan, and God tapped him on the shoulder and said, follow me, and so forth. No, Abraham was descended from Noah. He was among the Yahwehists. And among the Yahwehists, God called out a people for himself. But they the Hebrews weren't the only Yahwehists in the earth at that time. They just uh, were the Yahwehists who... God is always through the Bible narrowing the lineage of his eventual solution, his own son. So he narrows it from, from all the Yahwehists and all the descendants of Noah and Shem and to to Abraham, right? And then Isaac, then Jacob, and and so forth, all the way down, Uh, Judah, and so forth, right? So historical narrative, huge. And God's telling a story through the historical narrative. It's the story of his kingdom. It's the story of his eternal decrees. It's the story of what he always predestined to do before time began. And that he's revealing... In scripture and in the person of Christ Hebrews 1 says that in times past God spoke to our fathers the father, the Hebrew fathers in many what people in many ways right but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son whom he made the heir of the whole world and etc and so forth all right so that's kind of the story of the Bible Um, Then we talked about laws and ordinances. What do we mean by why are biblical laws important? Right. Without biblical law, sin is very deceptive. We are all deceived by it tremendously. All of us think we are morally in much better shape than we are. Every one of you Underestimates the depth of your sin problem as do I. And the law was given, as Paul says, to be our tutor to lead us to Christ. Right? If, it, as Paul says, if it hadn't been for the law saying "Thou shalt not, not covet," I wouldn't have known that I coveted. Right? How many guys have uh, and gals can relate to Jesus says if you even lust after someone in your heart? You've committed adultery in your heart. Like, you thought you were pretty good until you read that one, right? <laughs> How about uh, if you're even angry at your brother enough to call him a raka? What does raka mean? Empty head. Empty head. Ever called anyone an airhead or stupid? Have you ever thought that in your heart about someone? Boy, they're not too bright, <laughs> right? What a dumb blankety-blank, <laughs> right? Jesus said you're guilty enough to go into the hell of fire if you've had those thoughts. Anyone want to stand before God on the basis of their performance-based works now? Right? So that, that laws are, the law of the Bible is important. What do I mean by ordinances and statutes? Just reviewing here. This is the most important class you've ever taken, by the way, by far. There's, unless you went to Dominion Academy and took Bible survey. But if you did and you really paid attention, you should be answering every one of these questions. <laughs> John, what, what, are, what do we mean by ordinances and statutes? Yeah, that's not, that's not uh, precise enough. That's... Yeah, the hypothetical case laws that explain the Ten Commandments. Right, hypothetical case laws that explain the Ten Commandments. What do we mean by that? So when you study law, you study how to apply the law by case laws, right? So Jesus has actually given us case laws in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard that you weren't supposed to commit murder. I say to you, if you're even angry at your brother enough to call him an empty head, you've committed murder in your heart that's a statute or an ordinance according to what the bible calls so when you read in the psalms oh how i love your statutes or your ordinances in psalms like psalm 19 and psalm 119 that's what it's talking about it's i love to read leviticus 23 and leviticus 18. anyone love to read leviticus you you that's actually kind of a modern heresy you all you often because no see you weren't taught this growing up because you were actually taught you were in a Bible-believing church, but you really weren't, (laughs) to be honest. And so, because you would have been taught what this means. Because you should be able to say, if you really have a relationship with God in the scripture, you should be able to say, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Anybody like to meditate on Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus all day long? jesus quoted from deuteronomy more than any other book anyone love jesus (laughs) now i don't know about you i've been married 35 years right when i got married i didn't particularly like mystery movies now i love mystery movies and i was really bad at them now i can solve them quicker than my wife why do i do that because i love my wife and she loves mystery movies that's the only reason i chose to love mystery movies it's about the relationship right and it was a if i love my wife i'm gonna take an interest in the thing she's interested in and vice versa that's my wife. my wife knows more about baseball than most of you all. <laughs> and she watches baseball with Logan. <laughs> and she knows that baseball is the very first topic in the Bible, in the beginning. God created the heavens near. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so why does she love baseball? Because she loves me. Right. So, how can you love Jesus, but you don't love the books he quotes from, nor even understand what he's doing when he's giving us case laws? Right. He's given us. Jesus is actually giving us statutes and ordinances quite often in his sermons, and most of us don't know that because no one ever taught us that. But he does it all the time. And in fact, he's saying that if we don't understand that, then the salt will become tasteless. And therefore, the world will start to overrun the church, which is exactly what we've had in the last uh, a gradual process over the last 350 years, but it's really, really picked up speed since the 1980s. It's snowballing at an alarming rates. Right? So, laws and ordinances. Uh, one we didn't cover in here was poetry. Who can tell me a little bit about Hebrew? First of all, what are the poetical books of the Old Testament? Lena, you should know this. You took Bible survey. <laughs> Psalms. <laughs> okay. Proverbs. Proverbs song of solomon what's another name for song of, song of solomon song of songs one more name for it canticles often called canticles okay that's three of the five she's she's uh cheating and looking <laughs> looking to jonathan for help jonathan bail her out come on <laughs> what else ecclesiastes yes. and you've all don't tell them logan logan knows <laughs> Which one did they let out? Is it Job? Job. I, I, I guess you all didn't read it because you thought it said Job. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh. <laughs> so you skip that one. No, no, it's really Job. It's not Job. You can read it. It's safe. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, so tell me a little bit about Hebrew poetry. It's the, the, it's the, the, the in, of all cultures in the history of mankind, Hebrew poetry translates into other languages better than any other kind of poetry. Why? Couplets. What's that? Couplets. Couplets and? Triplets. Tell us what that means. Uh, it's like when you say something two ways, say one idea two ways. Or you say the opposite. Yeah. right so the couplets are are saying the same thing twice or saying the opposite that's why Proverbs is full of verses that say the fool does this and the wise man does that right and I don't know about you but I used to read one chapter of Proverbs every day and I would just do the one that since there's 31 Proverbs and I wasn't that concerned about becoming a virtuous wife which is the 31st proverb so on the on the months that had 30 proverbs i wasn't worrying about it too much maybe some of you should be more concerned about that but not so much me but uh <laughs> the guys this works out for better but i would uh, read the one that corresponded to the date on the 17th day of the month i read the 17th proverb right so why did i need to read those so much some of you know my his my background before i was a christian yeah, they have a better understanding. I needed to read them so much because when it said the fool was this and the wise man was this, I was the fool more than I was the wise man by a ratio of about four to one <laughs> or worse, <laughs> maybe. right? And I'm hoping that ratio has improved over the years, right? Pro- Proverbs starts with the, the, you know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And what is wisdom? Not uh, it can involve knowledge, but it's different than knowledge. The ability to make wise decisions. The ability to make wise lifestyle decisions. Yep. That, and and to have the frame of reference to do so, which is more than knowledge. Uh, some of the most knowledgeable professors I've ever no- have ever known have been very foolish people, even relatives. Right, yeah, right living, right behavior, practical righteousness, yep, in, in relationship. The righteousness is always found in terms of relationship to God, in wise lifestyles and so forth, yep. So, very good. So, uh, yeah, so Hebrew poetry, you know, like the one that, uh, that Daniel quoted, say, say the one you quoted again. repeats his folly. Right. So think about a dog returning to his vomit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? (laughs) The point is that, you know what, if you could actually get a hold of that, how many people have had a problem with repeating your folly at times, (laughs) right? You, you know, you name it from things like lust to procrastination. Procrastination on studies. I happen to know that people miss the Tuesday night Bible study sometimes because they have a test on Wednesday or Thursday and they weren't very diligent about what they did on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Right? So all of a sudden they're going to cram on Tuesday because they, they procrastinated, right? Anybody ever procrastinated? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody here, right? <laughs> this is what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that no, was a good one, then. We'll get him around to it after uh we well, we sell round to it for people who haven't got around to it. <laughs> All right. Um All right, so poetry, uh, po- Hebrew poetry, translates better because its its power and its beauty is on the uh, is on the imagery in of the couplets, not on the rhythm and the rhyme. So when you tr- the problem with most types of poetry is the beauty is in the rhythm and the rhyme, which doesn't translate well, right? Kind of hard to translate the rhythm and rhyme, right? But the imagery is easy to translate. It's as if God knew something in advance, amazingly. Do you think he might have? Think about it. He, you know, one of the great truths of the, of the, the Bible is that the, the poetry of the Bible, because uh, it's not just contained in the poetry books, but there's poetry in the prophets especially and so forth, it translates better than any other type of literature has ever translated as if the as if the author knew that it was going to be translated into every language of the world someday maybe he did of course he did right that's the point right now that's powerful if you think about it no other ancient no other ancient poetry translates well, and most, uh, most poetry doesn't translate well. All right, so that was what we covered last week. I didn't mean to get into this that long. I, I, you guys should know this stuff. Like, how do you read your Bibles if you don't know this stuff? I'm, I'm not wanting to be frustrated here, but I want to say we've, like, some of you that have been taught this maybe 20 times in this class you guys should be able to rattle this stuff off if now some of you are just started coming this year but if you want the dominion academy you should be able to rattle, rattle this stuff off you really should because i know that wayne goes into this f- further than i do <laughs> sure. i've always been when i i've actually gone through his notes for the class and i'm like it's way or it's way more than I you know, like man he'll take some verse out of genesis 49 9 and he's got like 11 points from one verse i'm like okay Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) it's not a slacker okay word pictures um important literary devices now so the point i wanted to get that we did all that for is just to understand word pictures is probably the primary way the bible communicates so that creates a very b- bad problem because again as josiah brought out to us a little bit when the modernists started saying the bible tells a story but they meant a mytho and in uh, fictional story then the idea of fundamentalism or evangelicalism with bible believing christianity was born out of that and instead of going back to a true way to interpret the bible they invented a new modern way to interpret the bible which says we can't use the stories only the didactic parts and if you were brought up in a bible believing church you probably haven't been taught that the how to read the poetry books and look for word pictures and maybe what ordinances were and statutes and so forth. And so you weren't, you, so you were, you know, a lot of people don't read much of the Bible because the Bible becomes very exciting when you know how to get out of it what's in there. That's, that's what makes the Bible really exciting. And so if you haven't been given some of the things we just covered, you'll read the Bible and miss the point most of the time. But the word pictures of the Bible go from Genesis to Revelation. Most of the major ones start in the first few chapters of Genesis and go all the way through to the end of Revelation. Such as the idea of seed. Every seed brings forth its own kind. How many Christians here have heard which came first, the chicken or the egg? And didn't think you could answer that. The chicken came first in the Bible <laughs> with the seed in it. God created the shrubs, the, the vegetables, mm-hmm. the everything with, as mature beings. Adam was created as a mature being. Eve was created as a mature being. And the seed was in Adam and Eve already for the present Adam. Was already The seed was already there and kept being passed down from crop to crop to crop, so to speak. And every seed in the Bible brings forth its own kind. That's why we have to have Christian discipleship in the church and quality and control and things like that. You know, the church today has become about mass production, a great American value in the mega church movement but most christians can't answer the kinds of the questions that i covered tonight and i don't mean any disrespect or offense but everyone should be taught those things the first few months you're a christian yet we didn't do that well with them even though we taught them last week and some of you have been taught these like 20 times but you really should know this stuff I know there's a reluctance for people who come all the time to be the ones that shout out the answer all the time. Hopefully that was some of it. But we really, you really got to know this stuff because that's how you read your Bible. And if you don't get to the place where you get equipped to read your Bible, then guess what? You're taking other people's word for it all the time. Don't do that. Learn how... You know, it's one, I do enjoy, now that I'm 60 years old, playing, uh, watching basketball and, and, you know, softball or f- baseball or whatever. But I missed many a basketball game until I was 35 because I was playing full-court basketball four times a week because it's much f- more fun to play the game than to, than to watch the game, right? And that's the same issue, like, if you want to know the Lord... Get into the scriptures, you're, the the living Jesus Christ. This is what the church taught in the first seven or so centuries. Jesus Christ is the living Word of God, and you'll find Him in the written Word of God. And so, every one of these way, uh, types to to not know that the Bible has these five types of literature that we talked about tonight is to close the door to your being able to read the Bible. I like John Steinbeck novels, for instance. He's a communist, anti-Christian thinker who's a great writer. <laughs> uh, but I've never learned that much chemistry or engineering in his novels. Why? About that. Yeah, because it's not that type of literature. So... Does everyone get what I'm going for? I'm really being, uh, I'm really kind of trying to be sticky a little bit about something. Like, you've got to know these five types of literature, and you should be asking yourself, what am I reading? Jesus uses poetical literature in his parables with word pictures and imagery all the time. And he's assuming that the readers know the imagery when he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches he's tapping into that god was the the husbandman who put a vine and he's saying i'm the true israel and and yes um, would you put poetry under word pictures or would you have poetry be a totally separate yeah i i kind of said say it should be a separate category except it uses couple it uses word pictures a lot but not everything in the poetical books is word pictures. Some, there are some didactic statements. Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is, the, is a didactic statement. So, um, and there's certainly things that are best understood in Proverbs by understanding the historical context and so forth. And that's definitely true of of the Psalms. Several Psalms um, summarize the history of of Israel the same way that uh, Stephen did in Acts chapter 7 before they didn't like his message very much And, and stoned him to death. At least I don't get stoned to death. Thank the Lord. Not so far. All right, so does everyone get why that's important? Is there anyone who is having trouble following any of these points? So I'm going to give a quiz on this next week, I think. Like, what are the five types of literature in the Bible? And why are they important? I'm not saying there's only five, but those are five of the most important. Right? So, you know, what are the Jews, what are the apostles doing in the book of Acts? In terms of these, like, what type of literature... Are they mostly appealing to when they preach christ historical narrative narrative, right they're saying hey we knew him we saw him we ate with him and we saw him many times after his resurrection with many infallible proofs some translations say in acts 1 3 some say convincing proofs we you know this we we heard him we we saw him our hands handled the word of life right first john chapter one and they're proclaiming the facts you know that our chief priest out of envy delivered him up to pontius pilate and that he was crucified but god raised him from the dead and so forth right uh, somebody read acts five thirty one. Whoever's got it, just raise your hand quick. Whoever got it first. And uh, someone else get John 15, 26, and 27. Yep, who's got it? Go ahead, Bob. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Okay, keep going. One more verse. And we are witnesses. Okay, so let's do both those verses. I, I should have said Acts 5, 31, and 32, apparently. but Read those both again. And then who's got John 15, 20, 26, and 27? All right, John John Bradbury, read it right away afterwards. All right. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, when the helper- send you to to you from the father the spirit of truth from the father he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning all right so in acts 5 31 and 32 they're proclaiming this jesus christ really rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and is exalted and glorified and sitting at the father's right hand and we bear witness to this and so does the holy spirit who god will give to anyone who obeys him and what is jesus saying he's saying i will send the holy spirit and he'll bear witness to me and so will you because you've been with me so the the truth of christianity is not based on that we have a philosophically more impressive faith it's more on, on a t- particular type of epistemology we'll talk about that in a second but uh it's saying This is historically verifiable stuff. And there's two kinds of witnesses. There's the witnesses of the apostles and the people who saw him. He appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection. Right? And there's uh, the witness of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian today, it's because those two witnesses convinced you. Not because you saw it as a morally superior alternative to Buddha or or Muhammad, right? It's because it's the facts, Jack. It's 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 backed up by historical proof. All right, so let's talk a little bit about epistemology. Who knows what epistemology is? I'm getting off the notes, but I really want you guys to know this stuff. This, like, this. like, If you don't know this stuff, you, you won't be solid in your faith, and you'll never lead people to Christ. How do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? That's a great definition. Epistemology is a study of knowledge, the philosophy of knowledge. How do we know that we know? Right? Like, people say all kinds of confident things all the time. I've been, read a lot today about all the Political and social unrest in our culture today, and and uh, one of the most uh, clear things that's going on about it is people are uh, are taking all sorts of angry sides, and nobody's even taking time to know much about what they're talking about or listen to each other or whatever. There's just all kind of accusations and negativity, and no one knows much about the history and and what the real issues are or anything. It's just this kind of cauldron of recriminations going back and forth right because nobody is all that well educated in how to think this is important like what school doesn't teach you anymore is how to think what school teaches you today is how to learn a certain amount of knowledge and take a test on it so you memorize and so forth but what what you need to learn is how to think like are these things right and true and real and how do i know i hope you're not following christianity because you think i'm a good christian (laughs) that would be pathetic (laughs) right i hope you're following jesus christ because of what all right so when you steal with how do you know there's different kinds of evidence right so uh what did plato and the greeks believe in logic or reason right so they basically said well what we need to do so if you don't know what i mean by logic or reason write write this down and read it there's a funny story on the internet that you can read called uh, love is a fallacy by max schumacher it was written in the 50s to kind of make fun of the fact that it used to be that you if used to be that if you went to high school and college In high school, you would take a class on an actual way of thinking called logic and logical thinking, and you would learn the difference between well-constructed good arguments and poor arguments that are based on what's called fallacies. Today, nobody has... Then it it degenerated by the 70s. It degenerated to you had to take that in college. Now you don't even have to take that in college. You just have to learn all the parts of the body if you're going to be a nurse or whatever, you learn facts, but you don't learn how to test the facts. And you don't learn how to put them together in any logical system. And so most Christians are very weak in their faith because they don't know how to verify if their faith is real or not. So the things I'm teaching you here are like, these are really basic. This is what you should have got in Sunday school in third grade. Okay. In epistemology, might sound like a big word, but it's how do you know that you know that it's true? I hope it's more than you're a good little girl or a good little boy, because most of you aren't. <laughs> no, uh, I know some of you. No, uh, I hope it goes deeper than that. Well, I don't know, my parents were Christians and they were Christians at the school I went to, or my, my church, I think, I'm pretty sure they're Christians. I mean, I hope it's deeper than all that. How do you know okay so reason or logic there are actually well there are ways to learn how to argue uh logic well and ways to learn how to do it poorly so read the little article on the internet called love is a fallacy you'll it's very humorous at, at the end and it'll at least expose you to the idea that there actually is so when i used to teach at sinclair community college i would ask how many people um have ever taken a class in the discipline of logic and logical thinking and things have generated degenerated so much that i often had students go what do you mean by an academic discipline <laughs> and i'm like holy crap like i started to cry and no <laughs> in front of the whole class <laughs> an academic discipline is like a subject like biology or chemistry or literature or whatever so in every academic discipline has its vocabulary and it has its basic ideas that you need to know to get started in that academic discipline right okay so used to be that you had to take a class in the academic discipline called logic and logical thinking Today, most people don't know the difference between a good argument and a bad argument, which is getting increasingly obvious in the political discourse of our country. People are just throwing out illogical uh, recriminations against one another without any trying to understand each other or anything. The fool has said in his heart, the fool does not delight in understanding, the Bible says, but only in revealing his own mind. Like, lots of people have lots of opinions who don't even know what we're talking about here. But this is actually the stuff you're supposed to learn to begin to know how to learn. Like, this is where education starts, is learning epistemology. Because otherwise, you don't know how you know what... You, you, you get all kind of people who are basically mad at their Christian upbringing, so they're saying really ridiculous, foolish things. And sometimes they can get to the point where they're, you know, sound impressive if you don't know how to understand the logic or non-logic of their arguments. Right? So epistemology is actually the beginning of knowledge. Okay. Uh, so then there's scientific knowledge. What do we mean by scientific knowledge? Can be tested more all right that's a that's a step toward the right definition that's like part of it can be tested over and over again by repeated repeatedly tested there's a time element we need to talk about Observable, observable so it has to be contemporaneously you have to be able to do it now right so can we, uh, can we prove from a scientific point of view whether there was a Noah's Ark or whether God created the world in six days? Nope. No. I can't prove sorry, I you had lunch you, Yeah, you, you, you probably could prove you had lunch today from a scientific point of view because someone could like suck the guts out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but you probably can't prove that you had lunch last week, not by science. And all of you look like you had lunch last week, (laughs) right? So science has to do with the scientific method. So today, most people are brought up to believe if something's not scientific, that it's not true. Is that true? That's far from true, right? Just take an issue like global warming, do you know that I was made to sit through uh, classes when I was in college by guys who uh, were supposed to be teaching political science, but they were radical Marxists, so they didn't care about the political science material, they just cared about getting their agenda across. And we had to read about how you were stupid if you didn't believe that we were going into a new ice age. Now you're stupid if you don't believe in global warming, but why? Because enough scientific people say so? That's really what we've degenerated to, and how illogical our political discourse and social discourse is. The majority of scientists say it's true. Do you know that the majority of flies think that you should eat manure? (laughs) Billions of flies are convinced. right do you think if we demonstrate there's enough of them that that makes it true Totally. (laughs) I suppose if you're a fly (laughs) so scientific knowledge is it true that if it's that if uh, if you can't prove it scientifically that it's not true that's not true is it but isn't that a very prevalent idea in our culture today and most people don't know how to dismantle that. How, you, you're not going to be able to lead people to Christ if you can't dismantle that in a loving way, but a convincing way as well. So I didn't mean to get on all this, but I was a little surprised at how badly we did it last week's review, and I really want you to know this stuff. So, uh, Stephen, make sure I have the epistemology and worldview charts next week. We have some, uh, we have some of those? Enough for everyone? Well, pass out. All right. So, this is why the historical narrative part is now. So, when uh, when when Bob read Acts five thirty one and thirty two, and who and John Bradbury read uh, uh, John chapter fifteen twenty six and twenty seven, Jesus was appealing to two types of knowledge that were not reason or science. So who knows what type of knowledge he was appealing to? Historical legal, proof and special revelation. Historical legal proof and special revelation. So let's deal with one of those at a time. Historical legal proof, what do we mean by that? What are some of the things that give us does anybody here not believe it, that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States? How many of you can prove that scientifically? Does anybody, did anybody empirically observe Abraham Lincoln? I know you think I'm really old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> Neither is Jeff Burks. <laughs> right? who, who believes that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States? Who does not believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States? No, now who believes, how do you believe that? You believe it on historical legal proof. Is that all the copies we have? I have some going this way. You have some going that way? Okay. So go on the side that says epistemology at the top. And when it says methodologies or procedures in the third category, so what about witnesses I, I was very fortunate one day because uh, i was driving down monument drive in dayton ohio and a man who was 81 years old who fell asleep at the cro- at the wheel was going down main street where main and monument cross and he ran through the red light and i was going uh, only 35 miles an hour i wasn't speeding but i hit my brakes and i teed him my car hit his car, the, the, the airbag hit, I thought I was going to die until the airbag hit me and then I realized the airbag just saved my life, I'm not going to die. And I was able to find my glasses in the back seat somewhere. But he died. The other guy died. And because he fell asleep at the wheel, ran a red light, and he was not wearing a seatbelt and he flew through the window. Boom. So um, guess why I didn't get in any trouble because they were able to reconstruct the accident, they got twelve other eighty-one-year-old men to volunteer to fall asleep <laughs> and drive through a red light. Get rid of these What's that? Get rid of these guys. Why? Why didn't I get in any trouble? You're no witnesses. witnesses. So a bunch of people who were standing at the corner decided to stay and tell the police what happened, thankfully. Without my asking them to, they were just good citizens. And they said, that guy ran through the red light. He looked like he might be asleep. They all had speculations. So what did they know? They knew he ran through the red light. What were they speculating on? They didn't know why he ran through the red light. There's a lot of spec. Maybe he fell asleep, whatever. But uh, it was was clear he ran through the red light. It was clear he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And it was clear uh, by witnesses. Now they also knew I wasn't speeding. How did they know that? Because they were there, partly by witnesses, but partly by something else. But that there was some science involved there, because they were able to see how long my skid marks were, and the weight of the car, and so forth. And they have ways of calculating stuff like that. So there was some scientific proof available there. And you say, well, it's not repeatable, but but all their charts and values and so forth are are based on repeat, repeatable physical principles of science and so forth, right? But my the fact that I didn't get in any trouble at all was based on witnesses. And that's a type of knowledge. And you have to ask, so what are some things you have to ask of witnesses? Are they trustworthy? Are they trustworthy? In what ways could they not be trustworthy? Yeah, maybe they're lying. Maybe they have incentives to lie. Maybe they were high. Yeah. Maybe, they were the, maybe they were high. So not just that they were lying, maybe their perceptions are wrong. So th- who's ever read this Proverbs? The first to plead his case seems just until another examines him cross-examination is based on the book of proverbs and it's based on hebrew principles of law that came in that were borrowed by the romans and became part of the of western jurisprudence for centuries we have what we call an adversarial law system because the idea is if this person is trying to prove something and this person is trying to prove the opposite that's the best chance of getting at the proof at the at the truth and one of the ways, what is the the attorneys? One of the things the attorneys trying to do is called impeach the witness. What do we mean by that? Reasonable doubt, maybe. What's that? Cause people to maybe doubt them for whatever. Yeah, to, to doubt the witness's testimony for because they have they didn't see it correctly or they have an agenda, politically or economically or some reason. Right. You're trying to 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 get rid of the credibility of the witness. Right so now when we're dealing with historical things what else besides witnesses can be witnesses yeah like historical writings it's on the chart if you there's an important word there things like artifacts right For instance, almost all Western people thought that the Iliad and the Odyssey were complete fiction until an archeologist in the 1950s used the Iliad and the Odyssey to find the cities uh, that uh, are mentioned in the book. Then there became a question, oh, is this historical fiction or is this actually, there's some history here? The, The places that are talked about were real and the cultures described are accurate. Right, so there's a witness of history that they were also able to verify through, you know, finding artifacts in archaeological digs and so forth. You know, the Bible says, for instance, when do you remember when Joshua destroyed uh, Jericho? What was said? And their youngest and that happened in the bible right and archaeologists again in the 1950s went back and found jericho and found several layers of the city and found evidence that the walls actually fell down and so forth if you don't know who william albright is you probably should know he was an archaeologist who set out to prove that uh, most of the things discussed in the bible that you can find the You can find the actual cities and places and so forth. You're not going to find Abraham's tomb, but you can verify that the world that the Bible describes in the time of Abraham existed, and it's pretty accurately described. So that's called historical or legal proof. And lastly, there's spiritual revelation. Now, what is that about? Jesus is actually saying, as the apostles do, that the Holy Spirit will bear witness. He's called the spirit of truth. One of the things I always try to get people to do is is get involved in worship, get involved in in, uh, places where God can reveal himself to you powerfully. Because the spirit of God will make you know that you know that you know. The realities of these things and god is willing to reveal himself go for long walks and look at the stars and say god reveal yourself to me but he will reveal himself to you more in just than just read now i i think every christian should build their faith by reading apologetics but you should also build your faith by having great experiences alone with the lord there's a reason why I get alone in my study and I get no interruptions and I turn off the phone and everything else and I spend time with God. Because the, the witness of the Holy Spirit is how I know that I know that I know. And I didn't know that before I came to know the Lord. I was trapped, what, what Ephesians 4 talks about being trapped in the futility of your mind. Lost people are at the mercy of of these other types of knowledge. Most cases, they don't know much about these other types of knowledge. But as a Christian, you have the witness of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to your spirit. In In the Gospel of John, he says, Whoever has believed his report has set his seal to this, that God is true. I've come to walk with the Lord long enough. Frankly, I concluded this when I was 17 years old and I first became a Christian, that I trusted what the Spirit of God was saying and doing and leading more than I trusted my own thinking and reasoning. Have you reached that point in your Christian walk? That's what you're supposed to reach at the beginning of your Christian walk, where you have enough powerful experiences with the presence of the Holy Spirit that that's where your ultimate trust lies not in your own thinking in your own reasonings and so forth and god is more than willing to do that for everyone but you have to be say to him you know create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in other words convert me lord because our fallen nature doesn't want to love and obey god and we have to admit that I'll never forget when I was uh, planning uh, doing my second and third campus ministry when the, in the first church I planted and a, uh, a charismatic Anglican priest uh, who had been a missionary to India said to me uh, you're supposed to go to church to seek God the vast majority of people in our day go to church to avoid God And I, at first I was like what? And in the 40 years since then, it's made more and more and more sense because most of us are kind of looking for not going quite as far with God as, as what God wants, right? So we do our churching up and, you know, we try to get away with as little as we can kind of thing. And God has to convert us to be a, a, a diligent, zealous seeker of him, Right? ask God to convert you to be a de- zealous, diligent, obedient, on-fire, radical Christian who's teachable and for- shapeable and formable. Well, that was a review of what we covered last week. But I, I, we gotta know this stuff. We really have to know this stuff. That's the sort of the basis of walking with God. Do you understand that like a natural-minded man, 1 Corinthians 2, write that down and read, study that this week. 1 Corinthians 2 is all about how the natural-minded person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. So it, you, can't, uh, you can't find God. What is the problem with, uh, now some of you might know what this because if you've studied a little, there's two kinds of per- apologetics. One is evidential apologetics. The other is called presuppositional apologetics. Mm-hmm. But in presupposite, why can't a natural man f- find truth in reality? Their hearts are self-deceiving. Yeah. Right, because, you know, again, the, the spirit of truth A natural-minded man thinks they're looking for reality or truth, but they're actually running from reality and truth. Before I was a Christian, I didn't want to be a Christian. Why didn't I want to be a Christian? have to stop smoking (laughs) weed. Yeah, (laughs) because I didn't want to give up smoking weed and being popular and... Driving around uh, and having egg wars and with my friends and every other irresponsible, ungodly thing that I loved doing because I loved my sin. The reason you don't quit your sin is because you, you know, like, "Oh Lord, I hate this sin." You liar! <laughs> if you're still doing it, don't tell God that I hate my sin. Actually, cry out to God. I love my sin. Save me. Change my heart i love being passive about the things of god and and i love having like it's okay if you know like on or Deanna, or steven's radical as long as i don't have to get that radical. you know it's okay if someone else is radical right i wish they wouldn't come around so much because it reminds me i'm trying to be you know like i hated my parents jesus freak friends <laughs> right And i called them the parents and the jesus freaks and so forth why because they were i was trying to be miserable and they were trying to interrupt that (laughs) they're all always coming up to you and going i'm praying for you and i'm like please don't (laughs) i'm praying that god will slap you around no i'm praying you'll quit praying i'll pray to the gods of the atheist that you'll leave me alone there's none who seeks for god no not one if you don't be if you haven't got to the point where you understand that you didn't choose him but he chose you and in fact if it were left to you you'd still be running from him i would say you haven't progressed very far that's like at the beginning of the christian life so well i didn't mean to uh Maybe we'll talk about world views next week. Is this helpful stuff? Like if you, I hope you'll understand, like when you're reading the Bible, one of the things, again, when this modernist fundamentalist thing happened, the modernist said it's all stories. So I remember reading a thing and, uh, you know, everyone knows that say the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the Episcopalian Church of America uh, ordain homosexual ministers, Uh, uh, that you can take classes at at some of their seminaries in witchcraft, and uh, that that lots of Baptist kids and lots of evangelical kids read all kinds of witchcraft books and so forth, right? Why? If you're brought up believing the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit aren't for today, you were designed to be spiritual. And you'll get your spiritual adventures met, met somewhere. Including reading semi-occult books Most most uh, Cessationists I know the kids are very into witchcraft books and stuff Why because they they need to have spiritual experiences and they're not getting that in the church Right when I take a survey, most people, most Christians I talk to today have never cast a demon out or, uh, or seen somebody actually healed or so forth, but it's all over the Bible. And we're supposed to be Bible-following Christians. I'd encourage you, if you don't know how to cast out demons, learn. Most Christians world, worldwide, the majority of Christians in the history of Christianity have practiced those things through most of the centuries. So the idea that we don't do that today is somewhat based on modern, Western, scientific, empirical, unbelieving ways of natural-minded ways of looking at reality. So that are not necessarily rooted in any true understanding of scripture. They're just rooted in our natural-minded culture. So, um, well, I didn't mean to get into all that, but I, I just really encourage you what happened when, again, the fun, when the modernists kind of threw out the historicity of the Bible, uh, what's known as the Reformed Anglican Church or the Reformed Episcopal Church broke off because they saw that's where the Episcopalians would end up. In the Lutheran Church, the, the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans and the Missouri Synods broke off from the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America because once you start going with the modernist assumptions, then nothing is real and nothing is true and you end up where, you know, morally just whatever the prevailing culture is saying is right and politically correct, that's what's moral, right? But fundamentalism reacted against that by saying um, we want to interpret the Bible literal. Now, Martin Luther used a German word very similar to literal, but what did his German word mean? It meant the Bible is literature. And like how you're supposed to read the Bible, do you think like in the Song of Solomon that the bride really had a a neck that was like the Tower of Siloam? (laughs) Do you think she really had breasts that were like sheep's wool? (laughs) Or I think her teeth were like sheep's wool. Wouldn't you like a girl with fuzzy teeth? (laughs) Right? It's poetry it's not to be interpreted literally because it's not trying to be literal. So read the different parts of the Bible in the genre they are. It's inerrant, it's infallible, and therefore the historical parts are accurate and they do tell God's story. But the poetry books, now there are books that lit you know no one knows for sure if job is just poetical or job actually happened because it sort of presents itself as a poem that happened my my own leaning would be to be more conservative and believe it actually happened but we certainly know that the that the history of the historical books and the gospels and acts that all happened That's important because then you deal with the fact that Jesus healed people and Jesus cast out demons. And you deal with the fact that the church did. Very important. So um, the idea that we should only interpret the Bible literally has led to most evangelicals only have preconceived ideas and proof text. The average evangelical person we start discipling that's college age today usually has only read parts of the bible how many people how many people here and i know adam's one of them were raised in such a way that you knew it was important and you in fact read the whole bible several times by the time you got through high school all right so don't don't be shy dominion academy guys you at least read the whole bible a couple times right what's that your church was good about that. You, I know what church you go to, right? So you read it through all the way two or three times, Bob, you were taught to do so, but uh, by your own admission, when you first came here, you had not done so, but you have now, right? Several times. Adam, you had actually read the Bible two or three times all the way through Deanna <laughs> through Bible survey, right? Class Byron, had you read the whole Bible through in high school? now let me not to embarrass anybody but how many people had these two combinations your church said we believe the bible we are bible believing we take the bible literally or something like this but it was never emphasized to you that that the the logical outcome of that would be that you'd read the whole bible through several times how many had that experience chris i'm pretty sure you've never were emphasized to read the whole bible several times right jonathan josiah logan stephen who else um joshua right joshua jane you had never until you got to dominion academy you had never read the whole bible through but your church says we're a bible believing church and, and so you are did you know that all scripture was inspired by god most of you had that idea right but no one ever put the logic together that if all scriptures are inspired by god then we should read the all scripture right what about you bethany you, you i know what churches you went to you never were taught that you should read the whole bible all the way through right is that correct so uh psalm one nineteen one sixty, 160 the sum of your word is truth i'd encourage you to get on some kind of plan where you're going to read the whole bible At a minimum, it's a very, you really, on a a three-chapter-a-day plan, you can read the New Testament every year and the Old Testament every two years. So that every two years, you would have read the Old Testament through once and the New Testament twice. And that's kind of like the minimum plan I think you should be on. That's if you're really a slacker or you're more more, uh, troubled in your reading skills, which happens a lot nowadays, Uh, or you're so involved in school that you're taking, like, you know I always try to get convince people to to cut down to twelve or thirteen hours a quarter or something like you spend more time growing in the Lord than taking seventeen credit hours and stuff allows you to do i I try that whenever I can, but anyway hopefully this is helpful like get on some kind of program where you 're reading the whole Bible and ask yourself, is this a historical book so for instance when you're in um say, uh, the last half of Exodus, especially Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what types of literature are you reading? You can look at the notes from tonight if you want to cheat. Law. It's part of the answer. You're reading both a historical narrative and that historical narrative includes the giving of God's law and... The giving of the first statutes and ordinances to go with the law, right? And, and so you're reading both those types of literature in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you know that, you like you wouldn't believe how many times every pastor in America has heard like, "I don't like reading Leviticus." No, <laughs> right? <laughs> because now, if you know that there are types of Christ in Leviticus to look for and that there's uh, statutes and ordinances that help you know what the Ten Commandments mean, and there's an ongoing uh, historical narrative of God's dealing with with Israel, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he still deals with us this way. All of a sudden, Leviticus takes on great importance and is really fun to read. All right, so who's going to close us in prayer? We had Bob Timer open us in prayer, or no, Jeff Burks, who did. Uh, Logan, you wanna close us in prayer?